Hey friends, before the show, I'd like to plug the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At their storefront, shop.terracottadistribution.com, you'll find a wide range of Asian DVDs and Blu-rays from Kim Kidak to Jackie Chan, from Ho Shao Shen to Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell, aka the Japanese Evil Dead. This was even put out on a limited run VHS, folks. New titles are being added regularly, and if you go to shop.terracottadistribution.com, distribution.com and enter the discount code POFN10. That's POFN10. N This gives Podcast on Fire Network listeners 10% off at checkout. The discount code is POFN10 and visit shop.terracottadistribution.com for more and let's get on with the show. Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Young and Dangerous, the prequel and golden job. The tale of the adult Hongheng boys is over, and our coverage nearly is as well. So sandwiched in between Young and Dangerous 5 and its concluding part, Born to be King, Andrew Lau and Manfred Wong took us back to the past Hongheng boys, played by other boys. It's Young and Dangerous, the prequel, and uh, just as a send-off, to the coverage despite having no narrative connection to the universe, Paul Fox uh, suggested that we should fast forward to a 2018 heist movie directed by Big Head himself, Chinkalok. And that functioned, that movie, as a Young and Dangerous cast reunion film. Yes, even Jerry Lamb is here in Golden Job. And my name is Kenny Beer with me to formally conclude the trip down Hong Hing Boys Lane or whatever street or district they mostly ran around in is Paul Fox of the East Green, West Green podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. I do want to point out one thing um, that I think the title for Golden Job is actually the G is silent and it is the Olden Job. Mm. Well, they, they, they look good for their age, though, mostly. They, you know, they're not like, uh, boys, let's get back to work. <laughs> Just gonna have to bring my uh, my assistants, <laughs> or my walking assistants. And no, they look yeah, they look pretty good. And as I said, and probably will say because it amuses me, uh, hair game on point in Golden Joe. Oh boy, is it on point! It's uh, scarily on point. There's a heck of a lot of Ikin Chang hair, a scary amount. Even when he had it tied up in a in a ponytail of sorts, didn't matter. It's uh, it's frightening how much uh, how much hair is on that man. But uh, it's his cinematic identity, man. So. It's a mighty main. And I do, do believe you pointed out in one of your missives over to me as we were kind of shooting ideas back and forth. Uh, uh, Jerry Lamb also kind of uh, sporting a mighty main in this one. Indeed. And Jordan Chan is sporting one of those uh, acorn uh, man buns. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where they have no hair, but they still pull it back and make it a tiny, tiny, tiny little ponytail. So they look like an acorn. They're so a fail. In that regard, but uh, no one should try it, and really, unless they're Toshiro Mifune, because in those movies, the you know l- long mane and a perfect, perfect man bun 
as he did his uh, Kurosawa movies. So that's the gold standard. That's why I will never try it. So uh, let that be a lesson, kids. Uh, so it, it's funny. We, uh, we we joked also off air. I at least said when we did the first Young and Dangerous in, on the podcast in 2019, 2018. I had no hurry to conclude this. Uh, but my point is, I had seen it before. I'd seen the first three before. And I wasn't that wild about them. But I realized there's... There's cultural context here. It was a cultural phenomenon, so why not at least do the first? And I was pretty fed up after the first one, like on the podcast. Not like the finally, we're not doing anything anymore. We're done. And then after a while, yeah, I might as well do two. In in reality, that's happening. Yeah, we might as well do three, like the the, the trilogy, because I have the trilogy on DVD. Well, we've done three, might as well do. And then we're off to races, and then I click into completion mode so uh, i have a willing participant in you that even if you don't like the films you can you can at least uh, put forth a a discussion uh, you can you can squeeze out notes uh, based on these movies and we were so close to the end by the time we reached uh, four and obviously five that why not and uh, then uh, you had a good idea to uh, combine the prequel with uh, the so, so the latest uh, outing when these guys uh, were uh, all uh, all back together. I mean, minus, unless I missed him, minus uh, J- uh, Jason Chu, Chu, I guess. But uh, and, and no other, like, uh, there's no Francis cameo in Golden Job or anything like that. Does that guy look familiar? He's called Handsome Quan. They, they, you know, they didn't do anything like that. So would be, I wouldn't have been against it, though, if they, like, brought uh, Francis in for a, for a little blink and you'll miss it cameo or heck even uh, playing a bad guy of sorts uh, because uh, i think um, you think he would be game at at, at his age to uh, be an asshole i think so but i mean you know he's he seems to have a pretty good stream of work so who knows maybe they asked him whether he was busy or i can't leave china and go to montenegro no yeah <laughs> and uh, indeed we'll, we'll get to that the uh, golden job is uh, in the tradition of uh, the heist movie the spy movie a globe hopping uh, adventure so the guys went uh, um, abroad to most of these uh, places in the movie unless they uh, faked uh, one or two uh, locations but it certainly is a uh, global action picture we'll get to that some brief contact information uh, first of all this is podcast on fire on the podcast on fire network and our back catalog of uh, episodes of this very show that includes uh, the entire run of uh, the young and dangerous uh, films it's all available on podcastonfire.com i have a specific category for young and dangerous so if you navigate the website they're all gathered um, in there so you can have a little podcast box set listen i suppose uh, in the chronological uh, order but we also have other shows on taiwanese cinema on uh, korean cinema on japanese cinema we do audio commentaries every now and again and the likes and you'll find some bonus episodes uh, in the archive as well those are exclusive to the website so you can't look them up on apple podcasts or um, stitcher or spotify or the likes and uh, on that note, uh, follow us on social media. We have handy buttons to our uh, main presences on uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, to our Instagram. And you can also click the iTunes button to subscribe to our feed and all that good stuff. And uh, I write about a variety of uh, Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies, including uh, little reviews of uh, each and every part of uh, the Young and Dangerous series. It's going to be up there eventually because when we do these episodes, I usually have notes that will get me a... Uh, 
a paragraph um, uh, on my website, uh, a review, uh, a quick take review. So I normally do that. So I'm going to complete it in writing too. But that's on sogoodreviews.com. So let me hand it over to uh, Paul, who's actually, uh, I don't know if you uh, redid your golden job notes or just um, uh, unarchived your um, notes from uh, the episode you did on the movie on East Screen, West Screen. Uh, or did you need to do, uh, like, 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 how do you function? Can you even without viewing a movie go back to your notes and then boom memories come flooding back or you need a fresh viewing and a fresh set of notes notes what are those <laughs> it's all in my brain man no um i you know i i do have them i do have a you know archive of show notes that whatever we've done in the past but i didn't want to go back to them i just sat down start watching the movie Remembered some things that came back, made some other notes. Um, I, I, I do want to avoid going over stuff that, you know, uh, has been covered before. So I try to bring a little bit of a of a fresh perspective. But I think there are some points in the film that, you know, I, I know I talked about before that may come up again. I, I seem to remember you um, were this one of the movies that, where you had to travel not out of state, but um, far into the state to even get to a cinema that played Golden Job. Yes, way back before the pandemic, um, when I used to go to movies. <laughs> because uh, Welgo USA had this title, so distribution was set, but not necessarily around the corner from Paul's house. Yeah, the, the Welgo titles and and a couple others, you know, like one of your favorite series, uh, Detective Chinatown. <laughs> um, they tend to get international releases over here. And they would screen them, but they'd only screen them at this one uh, AMC theater down in Miami. And so it's about an hour drive down and an hour drive back. So it's a, you know, you, you, you tack in, you tack on um, two, two and a half hour movie, depending on, you know, waiting and, and stuff like that. You're, you're looking at a good four or five hours of commitment for a movie. So, but fortunately they don't, do a lot of releases so maybe you know one or every month or every couple months for a while and this was back in 2018 so it was nice 2019 they really didn't release a lot and of course 2020 everything's on hold so yeah they're they're obviously picking up titles but um I haven't followed well go with such if they are um well well obviously there there's not a whole lot of titles coming out so they can't pick up that many titles but uh, you know they're, they're they're certainly gonna be a present uh, presence when uh, movies start uh, coming out again because uh, I think they've established um, a model of sorts uh, heck uh, they've been releasing uh, almost at the same time or sometimes at the same time as the movies open in China if I'm not mistaken uh, well that was a thing that I think they did once or twice, actually, you know, the, 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 the releasing has been, you know, a little staggered. I think, you know, there are rights issues and things. And one of the things I was hoping I was talking with uh, my co-host Kevin Ma about was what's the possibility of actually getting streaming uh, day and date releases out of China. And he, you know, because they're not having to deal with the, the pandemic virus that we're all situated in right now. And because their theaters are open, he said it, it's next to nil. So this time last year, when they were in the thick of it, um, their cinemas were closed. And so at the time of this recording, even though you'll be hearing this later, we are um, just under a week off from uh, Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year Festival. So all the big movie releases um, would be lining up 
you know, for this coming week, this coming weekend. And this time last year, everything was on lockdown. In fact, I remember I was on the verge of buying a movie ticket down in Miami for maybe it was Detective Chinatown 3, which was supposed to be released last year or one of the other Lunar New Year films. And literally, like it was like a Thursday night, I remember. And I was like, hmm, should I buy the ticket tonight or just wait until, you know, tomorrow when I'm going to go? And within like the 12 hour period by the next day, China had frozen all of their their movies locally and internationally. Um, so I even had I bought the ticket, you know, I would have gotten a refund because they weren't going to screen the movie. So now this year, you know, their movies are in full swing. Uh, Detective Chinatown, you know, which was supposed to show last year is going to show this year. They've got a couple other um, big Lunar New Year films. This is China proper, not Hong Kong. Nothing's coming out in Hong Kong right now. So they're still on on lockdown. And I asked Kevin, I said, you know, are they going to stream any of these day and date? And he's like, no, no, it's all going to be box office and go sitting, you know, butts in seats because um, they're not going to do the streaming thing. And I was like, oh, you know, because I was hoping we'd, you know, kind of maybe push forward and 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 get a little bit of um, a paradigm shift in the in the approach to this. But now they're just going to go back to the the old box office model, unfortunately. It's hard to uh, turn away from that when, when you have a movie like that, uh, Detective Chinatown uh, 1 or 2, where they've made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of US dollars. Meanwhile, there, there's a, an incentive, there's a motivation to watch those wacky hijinks on the big screen in China. So I'm thinking they, they still want to capture that, uh, recapture that. You know, and the only movie at the time of recording that I'm looking forward to that I know was um, and and I'm not saying everything sucks. It's just that I I only know of one movie essentially. I don't follow the current uh, China scene, but I know it was pushed back from last year, and it's coming out in some shape or form this year, whether it's Lunar New Year or not. But I'm looking forward to Dante Lam's movie, uh, The Rescue, with Eddie Peng, and uh, that's gonna get released. I hope anyway uh, uh, this year. So eventually, we can expect something on on international home video later in the year not at the same time but uh, yeah and if i could just add a final point to this not to bore everybody with getting in the weeds of of box office but it you know i've always kind of been on the you know stream it and stream it now camp because i don't mind staying at home as opposed to going to the cinema and kevin kevin's kind of always played the devil's advocate because you know he's a cinema goer and he loves it and he loves festivals and i and i think it's i think both sides are great the the box office side of it that's kind of always mystified me has been it always seems to me like there's an equal amount of money to be made if they if they do both but one thing he pointed out to me and he said look at what happened in japan and so back in October, if you follow Japanese cinema news, of course, they're being slammed by the pandemic, too, but their theaters are open. They have this anime movie that's come from an anime TV series called uh, Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, which you can see the first season. I think it's it's up on Netflix now. It's been it was on Crunchyroll um, airing day and date when it was running. And I mean, it's a popular shonen style series. Um, and, and, and I watched it. I thought it was good. But I thought it was typical shonen. But there's a movie that has been done, which is, a, you know, it picks up the tale exactly at the end of the events that happen at the end of the first season. And I thought, oh, you know, great, mo- movie's coming. 
this movie has gone off the rails in Japan. I mean, it's it's put m- big movies like Miyazaki films and the big movie like Your Name to shame. It's busted box office records right and left, and it is the biggest movie right now ever in Japan. And he said, you know, you look at that and you look at those box office numbers and, you know, you're not going to get that kind of revenue from a streaming deal. You know, you look at the kind of streaming deals they made for Wonder Woman and 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 some of the, these other Hollywood films and they're small potatoes compared to those kind of box office numbers when something gets, you know, just a feverishly wild hit and 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 the that kind of thing now not every movie is going to do that obviously um but this this was a case of being the right movie at the right time in the right place for japan it's led to this um you know just kind of this historic numbers game which is very very interesting but that put it into perspective for me i'm like okay i kind of understand it now i kind of understand why the the directors and and the producers want to push for these because they want those big box offsets hits but obviously never not everything is going to make it so where can people hear you and kevin um, argue uh, on on the web in podcast form <laughs> yeah if you want to hear us debate this back and forth uh, we do have a show called east screen west screen and you can check us out over at concast.com excellent excellent well we're going to take a music a break and um, i did not jot this down in my notes because i was curious so as i'm thinking about it now do you know Uh, I'm literally uh, uh, curious if the song or songs that you hear in um, in uh, Golden Job, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna hear that that song later, obviously. But uh, I don't want to forget this. Do you know if uh, it's a shared canto pop theme in Golden Job between the guys, or is it just Ekin or Jordan singing? Oh no, it's it's all the guys, and yeah, I mean they have a they have the actual music video there at the very end in the credits and they've been known for you know whenever like Eakin has a concert I mean Eakin is the biggest in, and Eakin and Jordan are the biggest in terms of kind of having the musical careers sorry Jerry Lamb fans yeah facts but but they've all I mean Jerry Lamb has hosted variety shows before I mean he, he, you know he can sing uh, I think Chin Kalak as well but they're not concert you know guys themselves that they're not going to go out and put out an actual big album and a, and a concert CD every year um, like the big singers do. But I think it's, you know, if you would go to a Jordan concert or an Eakin concert, they've had re- reunions where they get the guys on stage to sing, you know, the Young and Dangerous theme song or something like that. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, you're going to hear that later on in the music break, but now we're going to take a music break and hear a little snippet of uh, what they played during uh, the Young and Dangerous prequel uh, days uh, within the credits so uh, sit tight and uh, we'll be right back to formally conclude our Young and Dangerous coverage And welcome back, and uh, let's talk Young and Dangerous, the prequel from 1998. Again, amidst the ongoing saga of the adult Hong Hing Boys, uh, this uh, 
prequel happened. So it wasn't uh, after all was said and done, the story was, was put to bed, uh, they decided to uh, bring us back to uh, the very first initial starting stages. No, it was in the middle of, uh, of the ongoing story, which is an interesting commercial a decision, but anyway, plot from the Love HK film review of the film goes as follows: Andrew Lau's attachment to the Young and Dangerous series continues with this story of Young Chan Honam, played by Nicholas Tse, and how he became a Hongqing boy. Young Honam spends his days pining after classmate Kelly and hanging with buddies Pao Pan, played by Choi Kaho, and Chao Pan, played by Benjamin Yun, and the ever important Chicken, here played by Sam Lee. I'm sure they could have got Jordan, but. It's all a young recasting here. Uh, and Sam Lee was hot at the time, obviously, coming out of Made in Hong Kong and all of that. Uh, Chan Honam gets uh, drawn into the tried world, uh, where he finds himself uh, disenchanted with school, alienated at home, and with, and with no one to trust uh, save the kindly brother B, the returning Frankie. Mm. Honam's initiation into the tried underworld is a rocky one, fraught with petty rivalries, intergang difficulties, and lots and lots of fighting. He makes a name for himself, but he also makes some enemies, including scummy Hong Hing boss Ugly Quan, played by Francis Mms. So, a little background. I, I encountered some trouble looking up box office background, uh, but this category free rated outing, meaning it was for audiences of 18 years and over. It didn't crack the top 10 that year, so that was the conclusion we made at the end. Uh, Storm Riders and Who Am I dominated the box office, uh, taking in uh, uh, I think Storm Riders was 41 million, Who Am I was 38 million. And if you Google how much uh, Young and Dangerous the prequel made, it'll turn up uh, 2.3 million US dollars. But that would have meant if you convert it all, that it would have grossed about 18 million Hong Kong dollars at the time and it didn't show up at the top 10. And after some confirmation, thanks to Kevin Ma because I didn't want to make the conclusion on my own. Google was actually referring to the fact that Young and Dangerous the prequel made 2.3 million Hong Kong dollars, which is low for a Young and Dangerous outing. But remember, this is all populated with new actors, future stars, and not the regular uh, regular main faces. So uh, it was maybe a disappointing for the series, but they were also... For the first time, I think, uh, dealing with a category three rating. But we'll get into some theories, I suppose, why it's uh, category three rated because it isn't uh, this uh, softcore outing or anything with the with the Hong Hing boys. Um, comparatively, that year, even Portland Street Blues, the spin-off for Sandra Um's character, Sister Thirteen, made about four point two million Hong Kong dollars. Uh, so that gives you an idea what was more appealing to movie-going audiences that year. Uh, these new faces were assembled again for Gen X Cops, uh, you know, Nick Tse, Daniel Wu and Sam Lee, and uh, by that point Stephen Fong uh, was in the fold as well. And that that uh, assembly would generate box office uh, by that point, though. Uh, the prequel was nominated at the Hong Kong Film Awards uh, in the Best New Artist category, and it won. Nicholas Tse, in his film debut, won the award, playing young Chan Ho Nam. And this was also uh, the year the spin-off Portland Street Blues won multiple acting awards, with recipients being Sandra M and Shu uh, and Beast Cops took home Best Picture. So, all in all, not a bad year for the YND universe, uh, even if box office wasn't uh, through the roof like it had been. But uh, 
I don't know what it, what that gets you, Paul, in in the industry of uh, uh, you know in terms of uh, cred and um, projects uh, greenlit just because you won awards. Because uh, uh, I suppose money talks uh, when all is said and done, regardless regardless of how well you did in your uh, in your role. But um, yeah, so let's uh, move over to some brief opinions, and I'll do mine first. Uh, little cheeky note here: Andrew Lau makes his first Young and Dangerous film because they are young, and this time it feels dangerous. Finally. Uh, by no means an exceptional prequel, and there's glaring inconsistencies, inconsistencies here that even a dumbass like me noticed. Uh, it's a period film, this, so that, that gives you an idea of what we're going to highlight. Uh, but its rougher tone and an engaging debut performer in the form of Nicolas Tse means we now get somewhat of a charismatic Chan Ho Nam here. Uh, the character is finally a little bit interesting. Uh, we, we have had our problems with Ikin Cheng's take and the writing uh, going into Chan Ho Nam uh, before. Andrew Lau also stays suitably hands-off and therefore elevates some ordinary, even dramatic moments by just letting the actors be. And uh, the young actors are good enough. Um, so it's a solid sidestep amidst the actual series that uh, never really reached any uh, uh, heights or any new heights by the time. Young and Dangerous 5 came out, and certainly not with Born to be King. So uh, it was okay. Uh, so, uh, as for your short opinion of uh, Young and Dangerous, the prequel. As a prequel, it's not very good. I think if it were kind of like a standalone young punks joining the triad, it's fine. It's got two things going for it, like you said. It's, it, it relies, interestingly, on the old cast of established characters that we know from supporting roles right and you know without spoiling too much because i think there's some nice surprises you get to see a lot of people you've seen before not just uh you know people like uh francis and frankie uh, but other people pop up here and there and it's like oh yeah they you know they would be around in in this period so that's all fine and and, and interesting you know and sort of like you know creating this uh triad cinematic universe that they've been exploring throughout these films but i think in terms of exploring these characters as kids there's a big disconnect for me between a lot of the personalities as these you know new kids play them you know um, nick was the rising hot star at the time um, both as a musician and as an actor and so to say, okay, well, we're going to put him as Honam. Yeah, okay, you know, because he's the big name, you know, and he's, you know, not just known for his own talent, but of course he had the the, the benefit of his dad being in the industry forever as well. <laughs> or, or benefit of hair, for heaven's sake. <laughs> yeah, that helps too. That matters. Sam Lee as Chicken. I mean, okay, uh, you know, it's I, I, I think I had a harder time with that kind of connection i then then maybe some of the others the, the, the other newcomers um yukaho is uh pao pan the the typically jerry lamb character and he, he you know he kind of fits and then um uh, benjamin yun as as cho pan who would um, uh, ultimately be played by um uh, oh gosh his name's escaping me is it michael say yeah michael say thank you um it, they're they're a group of kids they just they never seemed like the same even though they were doing some of the same stuff you know oh here they are on the <clears throat> basketball court and here they are uh going going into gang fights well that's a thing i agree with uh, ultimately the dramatic if there was any dramatic connection 
and any interest in well it was it was here that it started for the character it was more directed to Chan Honan because the drama was a little bit more solid the other guys they're they're cast ass but they're not uh you you're not sitting there like oh yeah that would lead to that and that would lead to that or these are the origin points of uh, Pao Pan being who he is that never got to me so it, it was not like that was the dramatic smack over the head that uh, wow like it, 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 this was a group dramatic effort um, it was more like yeah cute it kind of fits especially uh, the guy who played um, Jerry Lamb's character that was like yeah sounds like him too. So one of the things that um, director Andrew Lau is doing here is he's interspersing a lot of, not a lot, but but uh, but at times he's interspersing images and footage from the 1989 Tiananmen Square riots. Yep. And and here you are, you know, a decade later um, with a film that's taking place this at this same time period. So this is, you know putting these characters back in the 1989 period when they're, you know, just in secondary school and just getting into the triads and that's fine and okay. And then there's, you know, they're showing parallels between troops going into, into Tiananmen and, and stuff. And then the gang fight, if you want to try and make that connection. Okay. I just, it felt like he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. Did did he want to make this, a truly political film? Did he want to make this a prequel? There are things that are, as I said, covered before in some of the other films. So you've got the Jordan Chan prequel we've already we've already talked about. You go back to, you know, some of the events that are flashed back to in some of the other films, and then you've got this, and things don't always line up, right? That that that's the thing I can get over most easily because I'm a dumbass. Because I I know that with, with those were the days. They uh, they used Jordan Chan for maybe not the secondary school version of Chicken, but certainly they uh, they they got the same guys to play them as younger, right? So uh, so, so here we got a new set of faces, so you have to sort of adjust to that if you if you take this seriously and you're bothered by things like it's not consistent with what I watched and that uh, soccer field. Uh, a confrontation that it seems to be referring to the very first scene of Young and Dangerous One. It's not the same. And that's the thing I can let go of because um, my memory is shot if Andrew Lau is even attempting at all the same confrontation as in Young and Dangerous One, but it's fine. And, and Francis is back. But what I can't let go of, Paul, and here's the first sort of inconsistency. Like, why isn't Ugly Kwan sounded like Ugly Kwan? And when will Ugly Kwan sound like Ugly Kwan? Because here, uh, he, he hasn't got his characteristic horse voice that he acquired sometime. Uh, he's not wearing a, any garish outfits or anything. It looks like Francis M. Circa 1998. And here's your problem. This movie is set in 1989, and can you spot at all, Paul, aside from the very sad images of 1989 that you just talked of, can you spot at all any attempt at making this look like 1989? Not really. No. And <laughs> that is, a, if I can't get over that, more attentive viewers, I think are going to have a huge problem. The fact that this doesn't look like 1989. Oh, there's a banner that says 1989. 
as uh, they um, the boys who are now in a rock band in school are playing uh, playing music, which leads to the next uh, MV. But that music, and I I'm, I don't know that much about music, but that music sounds suspiciously like 1998 rock music. Yeah, and and, and exactly so. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they do a Beyond cover or anything, right? Like from that era. Yeah, like. it, and that would be more accurate, you know. I mean, Beyond was, if you think about bands, actual bands, Beyond was the big name of you know the late 80s and 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 that period. And I'm not saying that there weren't young aspiring quote-unquote rock bands at the time but i think that the music that they would have been producing it's not going to sound like nick says music circa 1998 certainly but again this is a promotional vehicle for him so they're trying to tap into you know what's popular what's going to get the kids in you know into the cinema at the moment and here again remember that this is a series that's based off comics i have no idea if any of this was actually written into the comics as the comics as, as they'd say in like the geek verse, if this is canon, I don't know. Um, it could be it, it, or again, it might just be a thing to kind of say, Hey, we got Nicholas say as channel and I'm so let's make the boys into his backup band and, uh, we'll, we'll have them do a concert. And then at some point they'll say, forget about the band and, you know, go on to, to do triad stuff. The transparency, I mean, it's good that they're open with what they're doing. It's a promotional vehicle, but it it pulls in such different directions that this is clearly 1998, but it's to- we're totally doing a period effort, but you're not trying to do a period effort. Like, no one is walking around with a current Canto Pop LP. Like, like the closest thing is that someone sp- speaks on a cordless phone that looks uh, period suitable and i bet even the police uniforms are like not standard issue 1989 i bet they fucked that up too so <laughs> it's, it's like come on like you're you're putting on the banner you're, you're putting the banner there 1989 and then you're not even trying that hard and that took me out of uh, the movie the, uh, the setup on of it all and if i notice that uh, and i'm a dumbass who doesn't notice continuity errors or lapses in continuity or consistency if i notice that then then you're on then you're on slippery ice. Yeah, and I think another sticking point for me, if if we kind of delve back into things that have been established, is you have Daniel Wu here again, also part of the Gen Xer crowd, as you as you mentioned, and he's playing Big Head. Now, if you you know remember your narrative from the earlier films, uh, Big Head wasn't in the first few films because he was in jail. You know, so it was established that at some point he was, you know, buddies with the guys and then something happened and he took the hit or something to where he went in jail. But the guys never mentioned him. Right. And here, too, the establishment of this character and how he meets the guys. But he has a girlfriend and that girlfriend happens to be. Who is it? It's Shuke yet again. Okay, Shuchi. And she is. You know, I, I was joking. I was like, there, there's, there must be like a quintuplet of sisters who are all related somehow <laughs> and connect, interconnected through this series. Because because you have her in Young and Dangerous 4, 5, and 6 as one character, Portland Street Blues as another character, and um, it's a miracle that she didn't die in 4 and came back as a new character in 5 or, or whatever. And, 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 I might, and I might be mistaken. She, uh, her movies might have been five and six as a matter of fact but you know whatever (laughs) 
obviously Andrew Lau, you know, liked working with her and, you know, decided she was, again, somebody who was up and coming at the time and wanted to give her more screen time. That's all fine. But the narrative that was established was that this character had a kind of relationship, you know, with, with the group. And I didn't get that sense here. And in fact, ultimately what you end up having is kind of this love triangle between Daniel Wu's big head and Nicholas says Chen Honam and this Shuchi character that doesn't seem like it was anything that was ever a point of friction once the guys met up again in the previous films. I don't think there was anything that alluded to Big Head going to jail in this film. So again, we we don't get that established. It's just, you know, he's there and he looks like Daniel Wu. And then at some point he goes to prison and comes out and looks like Chin Kai Lok. So prison's hard. And maybe that explains what happened to Francis. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the thing is, I, I'm, I, I giggle at thinking of uh, the thing with the Ugly Kwan's voice, because in his spinoff, they do a cheeky thing of telling the story from two angles from, well, he provides both the angles. And in one angle, there, there there's a, uh, a poignant and sad and dramatic purpose uh, that uh, eventually generated the fact that He's now speaking a little bit like this. And then they turn around and say, no, that wasn't it. In that movie, which is a more playful movie, they uh, they provide the backstory for the voice, if you will. But here it's uh, just it's it's not even that like they throw a rug on either Frankie's head or Francis's head. 1989. No, they, 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 they look like they would have coming from home. Because uh, Francis is stylish. He would look like that. Cool sideburns and all. But that's not 1989. And that's not... Granted, he's good at playing an asshole. So, you know, he taps into that type of character. But it's not really that character. And that was a sticking point uh, uh, for me. I, oh, by the way, what I forgot to ask. It's, um, I had a suspicion this would happen. It's a sync sound movie. But I had a suspicion Daniel was going to be dubbed. He, in Gen X Cops, I remember he spoke English quite a bit and then did the Michael Wong thing of maybe speaking Cantonese every now and again. Here he's uh, fully dubbed and because we know Daniel Wu's voice, it, it stands out like, like a sore thumb when someone else uh, dubs him. But, um, you know, uh, that was to be expected if I'm being totally honest. Uh, so it's not a, a uh, total downfall of the production just because Daniel is um, is dubbed. And, you know, he was American. He's American for heaven's sake. So, um Speaking of Nick, though, I mean, uh, despite our different views of the of the film, I do think uh, he's fairly confident as a new performer. Um, there are some dramatic beats I did enjoy. He's uh, he's assertive that you know when he's picked up by the police that I'm I'm not a tried, I'm a student, and he shows frustration that no one is uh, is listening, no one is taking him you know seriously, that uh, no one sees his uh, truth and. That is good. But the problem is that those engaging characteristics I don't spot throughout Young and Dangerous 1 through 6. So it, it definitely feels like this private story almost that uh, dies once they change actors or uh, once Ikin Cheng plays uh, the young, sort of young. <laughs> Chan Hunam, they're, they're young in the first movie, but uh, obviously uh, it's, uh, it's his role through. Uh, one through six and because of this by the way his character is a bit more eventful versus what we see through Ikin Chang as Chan Honam 
And I don't mind little touches about uh, the, the frustration about not being able to wash away the pad ink from the fingerprints taking that they do uh, in the police station. They, they go to uh, B's gym and he tries to wash it off and he can't. And that, that was a little moment I dug that Andrew Lau uh, put in there and Manfred wrote and Nick responded to that um, Chano Nam wasn't his character who gladly, just because he was kicked out of school, like, yay, try it now. No, that wasn't preferable because that didn't sound cool. That didn't sound glamorous and glorious. Um, so there are there are bits here that um, elevate uh, this series uh, above what uh, they usually uh, they usually did. And uh, I think Nick is for a new performer. He he, he does okay. It's a, it's a lot to ask of um, someone to inhabit a character that is very known. And at one point, anyway, through 1996 and 1997, was very popular and uh, even turned iconic and fans of the comic book of course m- might be looking at this like hmm, who's this new kid that's gonna inhabit our favorite character you know you got eyes on you for all intents and purposes out of intents and purposes i think he did well given what he got but there was there was awesome moments that require more out of him and later dramatically he granted he goes for it but again for a new performer he uh, he gives it uh, his all and i think nick showed promise fairly early on even as an actor you know throughout these years so 1998 99 and so forth um uh, fine in gen x corps had a good role if in metado for maca natural out of the gate i don't know if you want to place that you know brand on him that status on him that it was a natural out of the gate but uh, for, for a new actor i think he did okay in a role that uh, was established uh, before and you know he's got the luxury of you know coming from a family that was established in the business. So he he's he grew up around show business. That being said, he's got a buttload of talent. I mean, I think he's got a strong screen presence, and I think that's established here and in other films he does. And he's got musical talent. And, I mean, putting all of that aside, if you've followed what he does, you know, of late, at least um, since uh, like around 2016 or so, I want to say, um, 2017, you know, he's kind of gone into a new, newer area in that, that of cooking. I mean, this was kind of highlighted in his film, Cook Up a Storm, but he's taken a strong interest in culinary stuff and, and developing his culinary skills. And I mean, he has uh, been on, I think he has a series called Chef Nick, where, you know, he just basically goes on and, and talks about food and, and cooking and, and stuff with his friends. I mean, don't pretend you haven't binged it, my friend. I, I would have. <laughs> Because he's flawless. <laughs> in in a similar way, I guess you know, like um, John Favreau has done with sure. uh, with uh, you know his fascination with cooking and and some of the things he's learned as well. You know, it's not to discredit him. He just you know he did have that leg up because he was uh, kind of born into the industry. But he's proven on many occasions that he's got the talent to sustain it in a variety of fields. Do you think it was evident early on? Do you think you saw a natural on him? Because he, he was given dramatic roles also early on and not just uh, flashy roles uh, where the, the hair was going in slow motion all the time. I mean, he was given some material, for instance, in that movie Metade Fumaka with Eric Tsang. He, he did get kind of typecast, you know, for a while. And he had, you know, because of his good looks and because he was kind of the icon for uh, the new young demographic, I think, uh, and then he ended up uh, falling in with, you know, the the Gen X crowd and you get stuff, 
like My Schoolmate the Barbarian, which I think is a cheesy but very fun film to this day, you know, where he's he's kind of working with that group of, of young Gen Xers who, who then go on to, you know, break out and do big stuff on their own. You know, Stephen Fong, Daniel Wu, um, these guys. But he's done other stuff where I think he's shown that he can he can handle a wide range of stuff, not just sort of the cool looking kid. I mean, one of my favorite films is uh, the 2002 film Demi Haunted, um, which is about ghosts. You know, it's it's basically a ghost story, but it ties in with aspects of Cantonese opera. And I and I, you know, I think he's great in that. You get into things where he's got roles in popular films, things like you know, Storm Rider, uh, Clash of Evils. He does a voice for it. You know, so he works in in in, in the voice acting side of things. So he's he's really somebody's shown he can be kind of all over the place and and be good at what he's doing. You know, yes, certainly uh, with uh, New Police Story provided a nice uh, nice ex- exposed role, but but you know what I mean. It uh, was seen uh, quite widely being a Jackie Chan movie and all of that. So um, he was likable on screen and always have been. Uh, and uh, every now and again that uh, the material um, and the performance sort of spiked. Like oh, he's uh, he's taking a Taken up a notch and uh, he's uh, challenging himself and uh, and he responds and and I think there are moments here um, I, I don't know if you personally like attached to them but but there are moments here that I do uh, think uh, linger a little bit more especially his scenes with Helena Lola uh, who plays his um, grandma and uh, you know it's a, away from the more noisy triad stuff where we get intimate bits like uh, like him and Helena Lawland si- simply acting I mean the, the the backstory of his father being a triad and how he was killed it's not refined it's kind of tropey and the son is going down the same paths but I think those moments are better because Andrew Lau is just letting Nick and Helena do those moments he does not intrude and that doesn't make it boring frankly it elevates it somewhat um, so he responds to being a uh, uh, next to a bona fide uh, veteran actress, um, and uh, so he's not this triad psycho in the making. So uh, the, he may join reluctantly, but uh, ultimately the boys join Brother B because uh, there's a safety net there. You got a gym at the very least, so you can stay there. But uh, it's also fairly interesting that they're they're not um, recruited to be uh, cannon fodder or anything. They're not. Uh, thrown into fights day one so brother b as we i think we established in part one he he wasn't this uh, reckless triad boss that would just throw in whoever to perform the assassinations and whatever he uh, tried to shape them a little bit more or at least physically before he threw them out there and that i wouldn't say it's a purely sympathetic thing because they're criminals obviously and eventually they do get into some more um, nefarious tasks that are ordered by Brother B. But um, those were little interesting points that, that kept me in it uh, to see how the boys uh, you know, started to shape under his uh, teachings. And uh, it was not about uh, throwing them out there for uh, for constant fights or anything like that. So uh, talking those uh, dramatic moments, were, 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 were they anything you felt you could attach to or the movie wasn't... Uh, connecting to you even in those moments where Nick and Helena are just doing more quiet moments, doing more character-based moments, or do you think the movie was not connecting as a matter of fact in those moments for you? Because it's unusual for Andrew Lau to attempt attempt this, if I'm being honest. Again, it's a, it's, it's a little bit bifurcated for me because on the one hand, you do have Law Lan returning as 
um, his grandmother, and and we've seen her and in her relationship with Honam and in as you know, Ekin as Honam in some of the previous films. I like that. I like that connective tissue. Um, but as I said, a lot of this feels like if it were a standalone film and not a young and dangerous film, I would have liked it better, especially for those family moments, because you get, for example, actress, uh, Mary Han, Han Ali as his mom, uh, who we haven't been introduced before. And if that tells you something, then that tells you something without spoiling too much. Um, that, that there's a reason for that. But also we have some nice interactions between her and him, but he also has a stepdad, right? A uh, stepdad's played by actor Lo Hung, who doesn't show up in any other films. And it seems like it's established that he has a younger pair of siblings, brother and sister, I think, that may be his half brother and, and sister, you know, that, that, that he, you know, because they don't give a lot of details on, you know, when the stepdad came into the picture. And and again here, I mean, for me, I was really interested in in that fam- family dynamic. And, and, you know, there's a nice moment a bit later in the film between him and, and his stepdad, which I guess is kind of them pointing at, at the falling out. But I'm just thinking, you know, if Honam really had a brother or sister, half brother and sister, young, you know, a younger brother and, and sister, we've never heard about them before. You know, it's like... It would have been nice, you know, instead of always having Spencer come in as the as the father, you know, the, the Christian father. Yeah, I was expecting him at some point, but I never got yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, we could have been introduced to this character. Again, I don't know if this is a character solely created for this movie or if this is a character that's been established in other media. But yeah, I mean, when I when I look at look at it through the lens of, OK, this is a standalone triad story. Those moments are, are really nice. But then they then here's like oh here's La Lan you know it's it's Honam's grandma we we've, we've seen her before and so it has that connective tissue that kind of brings it back into the universe and then it makes me question one like where are these people you know in 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 movie two and three and four and so that's just my mind working against me. I mean I mean maybe it would have been nice to have um, a larger canvas to uh, tell the prequel story meaning that yeah. Maybe a second one with a focus of sorts, but, you know. And maybe what the intention was, was to take this in the direction of a, you know, of them trying to reboot the series and they had plans to do, you know, further films with this cast as kind of the new generation, you know, kind of like a new generation of X-Men films or something. And because it did not do that well financially, they put that on hold or, or maybe not, maybe it was just a one and done thing that they wanted to do to kind of get the new talent on board. It's it's hard to say, but it would have been interesting had further films gone forward and then they would have brought people like, you know, low hung back or, or had these relationships established that they could explore more that weren't established in the original series. Let's uh, talk um, the rating. This was apparently rated category three and your sort of gut instinct take uh, on whether it's language, violence, drug use, or male buttocks. That was the reason for uh, making this 18 and over. I, I'm going to say it's drug use um, right off the bat. Um, I mean, you. this is late 90s where censorship regulations, especially post-1997, had really started to ramp up. I mean, if you go back and you look at 
there are category two B films and in, even from an earlier period, category two films going back into the eighties and seventies, which have nudity, um, which, you know, have allusions to sexual behavior, which, you know, this film obviously does. But then there are also category three films, like things like triads, the inside story, which are really there because they're showing ritual and, and things that the government thought was inappropriate for young people. For myself, I really think it comes down to that drug use scene, which was what really got them the category three rating. But there might be other stuff tapped onto that, you know, like some of the, some of the sexuality that's being alluded to and with young people, you know, minors and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think uh, violence isn't grave enough to get it it's category three, something in drug use. Is it? Um, um, I mean, before we get to that, I think uh, some of the violent scenes here actually for, for the series were rather good, like the, the beating that the boys are, uh, and the assassination that the boys are ordered to um, perform on Ricky Yee, which is such a perfect actor to have as this smarmy, loud asshole as well. He's uh, very good at that. Part of the um, Danny Lee stock players uh, back in the day in uh, his many. Magnum Productions, so. but yeah, I really like that scene. It's the, it's the boys first. It's awkward. It's not overly stylized with like blurry slow motion, and we understand the deadliness of it all, especially because they they have to improvise. They don't have their knives. They don't have the machetes or anything. So they they pick up like bamboo, uh, bamboo sticks, like or sort of sharpened bamboo poles, and uh, that uh, m- makes the movie. Um, feel a little bit more dangerous a little bit more deadly and and that lead, leads into you know when chan honam is having to be patched up by helena lawlan and the boys are all there and uh, he's he's in pain and um, and he's given presumably uh, marijuana by by sam lee and uh, that's uh, you know calms him down and uh, at the very least you know he might be in pain but at least a little bit more relaxed and uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sure if the drug-induced haze that happens would be so instantly haunting, but I guess he was in pain after all. Then something really weird happens. There seems to be a weird time cut here, and and I smoke a little bit of weed, but it's never been in any any way close to as fast as this. I've never like sunken so far into drug use as these boys do in a very short amount of time. And I might be missing the fact that they're suggesting that they, they, they've been uh, hopped up on goofballs for, for six months here. But there's a weird time gap where the bo- boys are now super druggies. And they have to be locked up in a cage because they're so... They, they want it, man. They want it. Give us the pill. Give us the pill. It made me laugh because I think that happened fast. <laughs> And I think it wasn't like heroin or anything that uh, chicken was given channel now. It seems like it was, uh, you know, he was a weed smoker, man. You can see it earlier in the film. So that was laughable rather than tough and gritty. I mean, it took me right out of the movie and it just showed that these were adults making, uh, trying to make like this, I don't know, drug PSA. And uh, based on no research was whatsoever, just make it, throw them into a cage because they want it, man. They want it. And it so blew my mind how dumb that was. But uh, I might be missing some substance, substance huh, in that sequence. But uh, what did you think of um, Andrew Lau's, uh, Andrew Lau's uh, dip into making the boys druggies, super druggies? It's definitely a sequence that I think is uh, a, a little bit rushed. It's like, you know, 
<laughs> they go from from one to the other. Somehow, I I got the sense that it was more than marijuana, that it was like maybe something laced in with it, because they do mention heroin in, in one of the subtitles. I mean, as I understand it, you know, it, that's not something that's usually smoked, I guess, but is in, more injected. At least that's how they depict it in, in a lot of Hollywood movies. But I'm guessing it can be laced in or something. I don't know. <laughs> because, like, you know, yeah, at one point I think Frankie says, how dare you take heroin is the subtitle. But I don't remember what he was saying in Cantonese. So I don't know if it was a if it was a gateway drug or, you know. But, but it was not like you had chicken in a bad state uh, uh, before. So we no, never had no. any hint of like, he's taking a lot of the stuff, man. Yeah. So it, it just seems like a zero to a hundred thing here and rushed i think is the the very fair and correct uh, way to summarize that little section uh, because we move past it quite quick as well but i'm fine now fine now yeah it's like you know uh throw them into a cage for <clears throat> 30 seconds and they're cured <laughs> yeah so um, um even though the shuchi and uh, nixa and the daniel Wu love triangle i think is uh, a big bunch of nothing i i latch on to nice scenes like nixa and shuchi just uh, having a, a sort of hangout at the arcade and they're having dinner and uh, just playfully hanging out. They even kiss at one point just because it's no big deal. And I, I found her charming and I always do. His uh, his smile as he interacts with her, that's that's fun. They, they, they actually um, they do a one-take thing at the restaurant where they, they interact for a good one, two minutes uh, before the playful kiss uh, comes and it sort of wore my heart that Andrew Lau seems comfortable with just letting the young ones be because someone, if not him, realized these are fairly charming kids and we, we don't need to um, do anything here. We don't need to do, you know, coverage because they're not sitting opposed, uh, uh, opposed to each other. They're sitting next to each other. So let's just let, let the camera roll and uh, we know she's good. He's new, but uh, let's see how this works. And I think... Uh, a scene like that on, a, on an individual basis, though, works very well. Now, when they cut to the fact that now oh, there's a triangle and Daniel Wu, who's barely in the film, uh, comes uh, comes in and he's my head. And uh, you're right, that connective tissue to Big Head coming out of jail in part five, there, there isn't none because his, if you remember, his frustration wasn't with Chan Ho-nam. It was with the tried lifestyle. He had no safety net um, on the inside and didn't feel like it was worth it that his brothers were there for him uh, coming out and uh, he would rather not have anything to do with uh, the triad world as a matter of fact um, and that that was actually an engaging part of uh, the introductory uh, arc story of Big Head as Chin Kalok played him but uh, we never had uh, a reminder of uh, of that where we connected the dots watching the prequel so I think uh, that, that dies a fairly quick uh, Def, uh, before I forget it, uh, if anyone is ugly Kwan of this piece, it's Carol Wong, the character that he plays. Who, and he was in Young and Dangerous 5 as Mark uh, Cheng's uh, right-hand man. I, I said on that show, he can, be a, he can be a beast. He can be a nasty one. And they certainly do um, a few things to Chan Ho-nam, courtesy of him and his fellows. That is uh, more heinous and more violent and just more ooh for this series finally this series feels a little bit young and dangerous uh, because they they put a bag with over his head with rats in them and just beat him 
And that I, I don't think that's enough for a category three rating. But really, do, do, I don't know if that's necessarily like made you go, ooh, we never really had that sense of heinousness and evil in most of the other movies. In most of the other movies, we had a brawl or two. Some died, but it never felt like sadistic like this. And uh, I, I, for one, I like that when, when, when you get far away from the cool lifestyle and uh, and the fact that uh, this is what the conflicts will look like. But um, I know you're not necessarily this uh, bloodhound when it comes to movies. Like, yes, sadism and blood, blah, blah, blah. But uh, <laughs> what did you think when, when, when the prequel did choose to make this lifestyle as uh, evil and heinous as as we see in Carol Wong's scene. Yeah, I mean, I think they're trying to up the ante for the era. To be sure, you know, he's he's always good as a villain. And I think that one of the things that is maybe a little bit out of balance for this film is that you've got a couple different kinds of narratives going along as they're establishing things. First, there you've got the ugly Quan character, and they're kind of using him because he's part of the Hong Hing society that the boys are joining, but trying to establish what's the beef between him and the boys. Um, we know there's been beef because of the playground thing, but once they're in the same society, what's the beef? And you know, between him and and between uh, Frankie and you know, so they kind of go a little bit in that direction. And then you have Carol coming in, who's I think he's the Tung Sing group, which is a rival group that's been mentioned before um, in, in, in the earlier shows. So you, you will recognize them as a, a regular group of, um, you know, villains for, for the for the gang. Do, do you remember if that was the Mark Chen group? So Carol Wong is reprising his character. Or that seemed like a new character. I think I think it's a new character right. uh, for Carol Wong. I don't think it's the same the same character, but I think it's the same group. You know, he, yeah, I mean, he, he's very good at, at, at really kind of going over the top, but in a different way than somebody like Francis. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed having Francis here, but it did, it felt like a watered down version of Ugly Quan. And uh, it was, didn't, it wasn't logical to have him uh, just be an asshole, but not an asshole in the vein of Ugly Quan. It, it, I mean, it's fun to see Francis play that. But uh, I would rather have had um, them simply reintroducing the fact that uh, he is who he is, including in the wardrobe department. And uh, I, I would I would have loved to hear his uh, vocal performance in Sing Sound. We've only had that in a tiny little burst in Portland Street Blues, where he cameoed. Which makes me think, like, when was his cameo set? Wouldn't that have been further back in the past? And he had that voice in Portland Street Blues and nothing makes sense and I hate everything now. <laughs> So, <laughs> okay, it uh, it uh, rises and falls on the on on the shoulders of um, his uh, participation, I suppose. But uh, uh, the comeuppance is uh, is fun for Ugly Quan because uh, he's he's so cocksure. <laughs> and, uh, we, we won't spoil it, of course. But uh, the the authorities question the date he's with, and uh, it's not like Ugly Quan is going to back down after they hint at no, no, no. No, no, no. But rather like, <laughs> no, no. Check this out. Check this out. She couldn't possibly be uh, because her measurements are. I'm not going to say anything more than that. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I love that. That's my favorite Francis moment because, <laughs> no, no, guys. She could never be. Come on. Like, he's not desperate. He's just confident. 
and oops whether you as a viewer will think like yeah that's the spark that then works in favor of young and dangerous one because they're now rivals i don't know not really I, I'm, I'm just happy that francis Zoom is in young and dangerous one because he's the strongest part of that but uh, he doesn't add like, fuel to a fire of what happens in young and dangerous one not at all it's uh it, it's all it, it's a sidestep sometimes it feels like a very individual film and uh, there, there's no particular great insight into the other guys as i said but the honam prequel is in bursts okay because uh, there, there there are some elements here in the acting as i described and um, it all uh, doesn't feel like young and dangerous redundancy having a prequel as well um it felt welcoming bursts uh and i was glad it did had a, a bit more edge to it and a bit more teeth uh, to it um, on on the andrew lau standards it's uh one of his better better executed young and dangerous pieces uh, uh for me if i'm being totally honest so um yeah uh, it didn't feel uh, unnecessary but um could have been uh could have been more fleshed out in uh, in places and why it's not fleshed out maybe because it was quickly conceived and made or simply manfred and andrew are not uh, that skilled even if they elevate their skill a little bit a little bit here but uh, yeah that's just my take on it so i'll conclude my notes right there and uh, leave it to you to um, uh, oh i wanted to ask by the way to to sort of bring it back to the uh, contrast with uh, with the violence happening at uh, tiananmen and when we see the scenes at the hospital where people are captivated with uh, with it uh, was it effective at all once we got out of the trial brawl and you see people are captivated with, with what's happening and not captivated with with patients you know or, or did it feel like hand-fisted to a degree and in insecure and unsure of itself uh, on, on how to combine real life with the fiction if you will or what did you take away ultimately with, with um, from andrew Lau's choice to contrast this with Tiananmen? I mean, there have been other films that have handled that integration, I think, much, much better. It just kind of felt tacked on as as kind of an afterthought. And I think the integration, again, you know, youth violence and, and that kind of thing that he was trying to go for didn't really fit well for, for me, for my taste. Um, I think the film, had you taken those moments out of it, it would have flowed along fine. And I don't think the message is any stronger for it being in there. You know, I, I think that one of the things that technically, uh, you know, that this film suffers from is that at certain points, like you said, you know, there seems to be times where they jump and stuff is missing. You don't know if that was stuff that was cut or they just felt that the audience could play catch up. And I'm wondering if some of the narrative necessity that needs to be here was kind of put in the on the back burner because they're like oh we want to make a statement you know a political statement even though it's 10 years on it's not uh, like it's it's sole thesis so uh, therefore it, it does feel a little bit ham-fisted uh, even though you, you you do snap back into fair reality of it all because i can just imagine that as these things were playing out on tv as uh, as they did the, these things were immortalized and filmed people would be mesmerized by it uh, in their workplace and so forth uh, but th- that's again a little burst of uh, effectiveness rather than disinforming the entire picture i mean s- someone who did it 
well and even in a haunting way uh, and, and may, maybe there are conflicting views on this but uh, echoing Tiananmen was something John Woo I think did well in the bullet in the head it isn't its sole purpose either but uh, those replicated um, images he doesn't show the, uh, the TV images but those replicated images of protests in Vietnam that uh, seem similar if you look at the images produced to Tiananmen they they work better, but that's that's John Woo. This is Andrew Lau, and uh, there is a difference after all. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, that that's the end of my notes. Uh, anything else you want to say from earlier in the piece, or um, any final final words? One technical point: you did talk about the sound, um, the sound quality, especially when it comes to uh, Daniel Wu's very poor dubbing. Um, a lot of the sound in this is is really pretty poor overall, and I mean. With this being one of the later films, I think that I was surprised at how bad the sound quality is in, in some places. There's a scene where I think Lalan and Nicholas say are standing in the hall of the estate building. And it's a somewhat long shot, but they're talking. And the sound, the audio quality was just really, really bad. Mm. Was it like low, low? You couldn't hear their voices? Uh, it was low and it was like echoey and it just it didn't really feel like it fit the scene acoustically um and there, there were a couple of moments like this that i noted and it's not a film that looks good either in terms of i mean the cinema stock they were using the cinematography i mean it's kind of on par with the earlier films whereas i think the later films had a better approach to cinematography i mean especially you talk about like the spinoffs and things and you had different cinematographers and directors come on board with you know a different aesthetic a different vision for how they should look. And this looks like Andrew Lau. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't mean to pick, pick on him, but um, it, you know, he is, his films have a, a kind of grainish or not, not, not clean look to them. And, and maybe that's by design or maybe it's just cause he wants to shoot and go and, and get things done. Yeah. And s- sometimes by design, you want to make it gritty and grainy, but that can back backfire on you too. It might simply look dull and bad. And it doesn't elevate the uh, the atmosphere of uh, of the setting and the story and uh, the violence and all of that. And uh, uh, you know, when he was solely a cinematographer on other movies, uh, Andrew Lau was uh, you know oftentimes uh, elevating the looks of classic Hong Kong cinema. Uh, when he made his own movies, didn't seem to be as much of a priority unless you move into the more technically uh, high quality accomplished movies. Then you know, Storm Riders need to look good. It can't look uh, grimy and gritty, so obviously that's a sense of uh, uh, making uh, grand spectacle look grand too. And he certainly he, he certainly pulled that off, uh, regardless of if you think of the movie. It it certainly looks good. Uh, just a final, I'd probably give it a little call out or shout out to director Bowie Lau, who I think is on. He he may be on record as as being in the most of these, or maybe at tie because he's been. It's and somewhere on the screen, you know, uh, behind uh, Frankie or Uncle B um, in, uh, in all these films, you know, Young and Dangerous 2, 3, 4 and, and this one. Um, so, you know, interesting to see him pop up yet again. I can't for the life of me remember. I'm looking at the cast list now. I can't for the life of me remember where, where they um, had Sandra M's cameo unless the cast list is incorrect. No, she's there. She's there with uh, uh, her, her, her bud. Um, because Christy Young is listed too. 
Christy Young, yeah, their surprise cameo. Sorry for the spoiler. Um, but yeah, she's there in her overalls um, because again, it's back in time, right? There, it's 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 it would be the it's one of the flashbacks from the Portland Street era. era. She's young. She's on the street with with her bud Christy, and Pope Han is like looking for someplace, and they're there like having a popsicle or something on the street or some kind of snack, and and she's like giving him directions. So right, okay, well. short short little little geek out moment for again the connective tissue of this universe but no taifei no taifei yeah no he is uh busy getting his hair done who's that picking his nose over there that's taifei okay i hope we never run into him as for availability of uh, young and dangerous the prequel the young and dangerous dvd is currently not in print and i found it a bit pricey uh, secondhand so paul provided uh, the viewing materials from his collection uh, there's no reissue on the horizon, and officially the series is only represented on Blu-ray via Young and Dangerous Free and Born to be King. So you can start your collection now and uh, hope for the best. But there's not going to be a Young and Dangerous 1 through 6 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray anytime soon. At least not uh, in the same um, you know, sweeping mood. I, know, uh, I think uh, the rights may be a little bit scattered, so th- that might not even be possible. But uh, that's uh, the story's... Uh, that are available to you in high definition currently. So yeah. Well, in this day and age, who knows? With everything that's coming out, who knows? As you said, anything is plausible. Yeah, no, but uh, then start bringing them out and start filling in the gaps. And uh, I think Young Dangerous Free have been, has been out on Blu-ray for a while, for a long while. So, uh, yeah, it's strange. But uh, if you find DVDs reasonably priced, then um, then that's, uh, that's fine. The, the box that I got, uh, that questionably legal box set from Malaysia didn't have the prequel uh, they only did uh, one through six uh, the in years if you will but uh, the, the the massive bootlegs with uh, all kinds of movies and CDs and crap I think that has the prequel and um, and more so at any rate we're gonna take a music break and listen to the boys sing their hearts out uh, connected to the theme uh, that uh, is uh, part of the tapestry of golden job from 2018 so the hunging boys but not the hunging boys go uh enter the heist movie and uh re- uh, reunite uh, cinematically that way and uh, what is that like well we'll tell you after the break And welcome back. And uh, now we conclude, even though the Young and Dangerous coverage is officially concluded, but this episode concludes with uh, a cast reunion movie, as we mentioned. It's Golden Job from 2018, a plot uh, courtesy of, uh, I believe I picked it off, uh, Welgo USA's website. Uh, themselves so we can we can trust this plot as a matter of fact a group of former mercenaries they reunite to plan an epic heist boosting a truck full of medicine held by a foreign intelligence agency to supply a a refugee camp in need but when they find the truck it's actually filled with stolen gold and the band of brothers realize they've been double crossed by one of their own and putting uh, the situation right will be all out war and the group of former mercenaries are Nikin Chang Jordan Chan, Jerry Lamb, and Michael Tse. 
you know, the boys, minus uh, minus uh, the one who kept dying in the in the main series, uh, Jason Chu. <laughs> I think he died like two times and then came back. Anyway, the Hong Hing Boys reunion movie uh, it is, but uh, it's not another venture into the young and dangerous universe where they're middle aged and they're not that feared anymore. No, director Chin Kalok, uh, who's directing for the first time since uh, 2002's um, Hong Kong Japanese uh, co-production, No Problem Two. He gathered his uh, cast consisted of uh, Ikin and Jordan and Jerry Lam and Michael Tse for this uh, heist movie. And uh, in terms of performance uh, at the box office, uh, it uh, earned close to 11 million Hong Kong uh, dollars, which is uh, 1.4 million US approx- approximately, while mainland China took uh, took to it a bit more, uh, where it made uh, 50, uh, 45 million US dollars in a year that was otherwise dominated by uh, Operation Red Sea and Detective Chinatown 2 that each made over 500 million US dollars in China. So they were a bit behind. Um, in Hong Kong, uh, Golden Job eventually became the seventh most profitable local film. Uh, top earners being Project Gutenberg and Agent Mr. Chan. But as uh, Kevin Ma said, if 10 to 11 million gets you a seventh spot, it wasn't a great year for local films. Any opinion on that? Uh, the top earners, did they earn being uh, like top earners were they questionable films for your project Gutenberg and Agent Mr. Chan Agent uh, Mr. Chan is a Lunar New Year film so it's definitely got a little bit more momentum behind it in terms of being able to bring in bring in the box office Detective Chinatown 2 is just a roller coaster of money making for for China that series um, the first one did gangbusters the second one even more and now we're on the cusp of the third one, um, potentially doing even more. We'll see if if the year off that they had to take is going to kill any of that uh, that property's momentum. Um, Operation Red Sea, which uh, I think you've talked about, and I've I've talked about a little bit. Big explosions. I mean, not quite as as rah rah China as something like uh, Wolf Warrior Two, um, but I think there's definitely a, a taste for that. You know, for big. Uh, bombastic war films um you know featuring chinese troops which you know uh, i think it was a, a well done film a little bit over the top from on with regard to some of the graphic violence for my taste but um still very very enjoyable and, and a spectacle film that can be really really admired this film coming in seventh you know i don't think is surprising necessarily i mean in in a bigger year this film probably would have been even further down on the list, but um, this is a film that's for me a niche film. You know, it's this is for this is a film that's tapping into nostalgia more than anything else. But we'll get into that. Uh, I never saw Project Gutenberg. I believe that it teased the fact that oh, giant fat gunplane is doing the same, lighting his cigarette with the dollar bill as in the Better Tomorrow, and that shot I think was trailer shot only uh, when he lights his uh, lights his cigar with the dollar bill, but. Uh, it was Aaron and Chaifat. I suppose there, there was a draw to that locally. Gutenberg's a well-made film, and it's a controversial film. And I don't want to say more than that because that gets into spoiler territory. So, As for short opinion of the Golden Job, uh, so ultimately it's not designed as a young and dangerous reunion. It's not a triad film. It's not a, a quick comedy either. So it's clear Chin Kalok wanted the boys together. To paint a new canvas of some sort, uh, to make a new film uh, together. And uh, this it's a suitably sort of big heist film, action film, and even a bloody brotherhood drama that works well enough. 
Uh, it pushes some classic buttons in that department, that dramatic department. Uh, but it's entertaining and mostly looks good technically through post-production trickery. Sometimes it does not look good in that department. Uh, their uh, ambition comes back to haunt them but they, because they can't put together action scenes uh, in a way that... Uh, you know they distract uh, technically, even though they have ambition to make this action big and uh, big and heavy. But uh, yeah, the post-production trickery uh, takes you out of the movie every now and again. But uh, a nice ninety-nine minutes of um, nothing to do with young and dangerous, other than the guys are back, I suppose. Uh, but uh, having said that, before you go into your short opinions, are there like blatant young and dangerous references here that I simply missed, or are they keeping that on a down low? You think, other than being back together? I think it's just. The gang is back together, um, them singing together, again, pulling on that sense of nostalgia. But, I mean, it's not like they're secretly named, you know, Honam or, or, or you know, Chicken or anything like that. I mean, uh, Jordan Chan's character is roughly named Volcano, depending on the, the version you see, how it translates out. So, in the context of the actors as characters, I mean, yeah, I mean, Honam is... Kind of the leader of the group. I mean, not Hona, Eakin. <laughs> Sorry. Speaking of wires crossed here, like, uh, is Shu Chi in here, by the way, <laughs> to confuse matters? Eakin is, uh, you know, Eakin is the leader of the group. Uh, Chicken is the one, he's the volatile one who happens to be in charge of weapons and guns. Instead of being the, the boxer fighter of the group, Big Head is the driver. Um, which is fine because, you know, that's kind of Chin Kalak's specialty. You know, he's he, he does car racing and stuff, as, as I understand it, and as well. And it's kind of a side gig. Jerry Lamb is Jerry Lamb. <laughs> tech quiz, tech quiz a little bit. And Michael Zay is uh, Michael Zay. So. I suppose I know the answer, but for me, it wasn't like a terribly depressing notion to do a cost reunion film because they're not terribly old. And uh, Young and Dangerous movies weren't designed as action cinema, necessarily. So this is not a bad idea to bring them together. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's not uh, forced casting and forced forcing them into an action film that uh, they aren't capable of performing anymore because they're too old. Um, or what do you think of that? Like, like going into Golden Job and that idea of them back together to do this? No, it's fine. Um, it's got, it's, it looks slick. They look cool. Um, I think as a director, uh, Chin Kalak helms this very, very well. And, you know, he knows, it, you just take a glance at his, uh, you know, his filmography. He knows stunt work. He knows how to direct action and, you know, set the scene for some some pretty good uh, set pieces. And I think the rest of it, he, you know, handles in a very capable manner too. I mean, I was invested in the story and the characters and, and where things were going. I do, you know, we'll get into a little bit, some of the things that we can, you know, pick apart where this film doesn't hold up so well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a fine popcorn film um, in, in a nice little package. And, uh, and as I said, it's not uh, a forced notion to get these guys together for a film. These guys can't still do a film. And why why not let it be a heist movie? And uh, you know that's a new challenge, I think, for for these uh, guys uh, combined, because uh, you uh, you need to be up for a physical, a little bit of physical challenge. Uh, com- convincingly comes off come off as uh, being able to to shoot a gun and maintain your cool. 
but uh, you also need it to be infused with a pace and a cool and a snappiness. You need to depict uh, the capabilities of the gang well. Like, uh, and this comes to Chinka Lok's direction, of course. For instance, when Michael Se switches out a um, a VIP card that gains a woman admittance to the opening uh, the opening setting. And you you need to be so smooth operator cinematically to comfortably depict a moment like that. And I think Chinka Lok shows uh, shows that off early on uh, without being uh, insecure and flinging the camera all over the place and being jazzing up the visuals. No, it looks slick, but uh, uh, also controlled and uh, confident in its uh, own way. And and it's also neat to see where the performer comfort has. Like that journey of performer comfort since 1996 for these guys, how that has evolved. I mean, Jordan was, I think, progressing the fastest out of the guys. When you when you go back to the Young and Dangerous movies, um, the charisma and the comfort and the uh, and the presence uh, and the energy, and uh, I think that is still true. But uh, I really can't pick apart uh, that either guy is like unsuitable for this. I think uh, it's a nice looking group effort and uh, even at their age why, why not do a heist movie it uh, it looks perfectly fine on um, on all of them and uh, it, it's fun to see them um, kick around and, and also be um, silly with each other like the, the, that moment after the first initial set piece that I actually thought was going to be like the plot catalyst oh they're getting get, they're getting off the ground fast but no it's like a, a pre Scene, but uh, Michael Say has been um, uh, shot at this point in the leg, and uh, I think Jordan just kicks his leg at one point just to check does it, does it hurt? <laughs> it's a little fun, little element, little signal of good banter. The good mercenaries, the cool mercenaries, their uh, friend, they rib, they rib each other. And uh, I think uh, over the years, uh, it seems like they've grown comfortable as on screen uh, performers, uh, and uh, therefore it makes it fun. And it makes it suitable to have them all uh, all back together here, you know, uh, as that um, first sequence shows. So, uh, or what do you think? Uh, looking at the guys uh, here, uh, it, it's like a suitable vehicle for all of them to to be in, and uh, it's uh, suitable for for them to be gunplay heroes ultimately. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think so. I think they all uh, like each other and and get along together and and work well together. Um, it's not a case, I think, where you've got uh, big egos or big personalities that are going to clash on set or anything like that, which is maybe one of the reasons why they were able to get together and, and get something like this off the ground. Um, and, you know, especially with trusting Chin Kalak at the helm, because, again, he doesn't have a big quote-unquote director filmography, but he does have so many titles um, that he's worked at, you know, in action, action direction, action choreography. A bigger egoed actor might say, you know, I'm not, I, I don't trust you to pull off the dramatic side of this. You know, yeah, you can pull off the gunplay and the explosions, but, you know, when you're doing the close-ups on my face and my my moments, you know, I'm ready for my close-up kind of thing. Um, are you going to be able to make me look good? So I don't think that they they have to worry about any of that. They, I think they had an idea and they had the funding and they were able to say, let's go and, and do this and and make it big, you know, because they globe hot. They, sorry, they globe trot and 
and go to different locations and um, bring in some some people that uh, you've seen before and that I first time I watched it I wasn't expecting and it, and it's really nice to see them uh, on screen sync sound so yay you know that, that that's really great well we can get into the to the gunplay and the action and and that kind of stuff but there's some nice little touches that I really noticed on on this you know watch through again that stood out to me more so than the first time. And one of them was this really subtle moment with Jordan Chan where for reasons, you know, he's basically become homeless and lived as a homeless guy for um, a series of years. And then his buds go and get him and he, you know, he's going to, they're going to bring him back into the fold. And he very has this very quiet scene with like these two other homeless people and he's in a foreign country, so obviously there's, you know, some would be some communication barriers. So, you know, he doesn't say anything, but he basically goes and, you know, has a moment with them, gives them his stuff. And and it's like that was really, really nice. You know, that was it was a nice moment that explained a lot about the character, about what he's been going through without having to have narration, without having to have a lot of, you know, flashback or anything. And And it said a lot. And I think that was a strong point for Chin Carlock's direction and, and being able to tell moments like that, that were not big and loud and bombastic. He's come um, a long way since 97 aces go places. The cinematic uh, masterpiece that we all quote and love on a daily basis. (laughs) Uh, It's not free movies uh, in total. I think Um, that no problem too, which was really enjoyable. This, uh, you know, a send-up of Hong Kong action cinema through the eyes of a Japanese character who loves Hong Kong cinema. And it was fun. I remember it being very, very fun. Uh, Yun Byu is in it. Uh, nice little comedic role for him. Going back a little bit to the opening, I think it's a pretty neat, intense sequence when everything gets chaotic on the stage. You know, that distracting light show that happens and the hole that uh, that they have set up to, uh, to uh, for, for a person on stage to fall down into. There's uh, some first evidence of uh, Jordan and Ikin Chang uh, gunplay, and there's some neat physical action there where Jordan Chan runs through a glass door, and uh, it looks great, but it's a, it's the one of the only signs of the action scenes being a little bit too shaky, as uh, as shot by the cinematographer for my taste. But uh, still, there's some rapid, snappy design captured here as uh, as gunplay makes its entrance into the film. The the only thing I didn't like, but just gonna have to accept it that i think i have is the uh, cj blood puffs that come out of people right uh, because mm. uh, they're not gonna do physical scripts anymore I, I, i've come to accept that but so, sometimes it's uh, it's floaty liquid cg and this one they go for the for the almost a smoky puff but it's distracting but it's part of in the way of the cinematic world so fine fine i can i, I don't need to be distracted by it uh, anymore and uh, let's just move on and see uh, how this global slick movie uh, continues to do because there are evidence of uh, it being snappy it doesn't do need to be overly stylistic it simply is on the move and uh, the i wrote in my notes that that's good but it needs some oomph to thrill me and eventually, eventually i think i got that because of the focus on what i call the bloody brotherhood uh, angle and uh, some decent uh, action set pieces that felt 
more Hong Kong rather than uh, Chin Kalok trying to desperately emulate like Mission Impossible or anything. Yeah. It looks uh, decent uh, in in that uh, regard. And I mean, I might as well stop there. Do you think there's any element of uh, Golden Job trying to be a movie that taps into a, a Tom Cruise spectacle, if you will, or it's it's disconnected from the Mission Impossible films? You think? Oh no, it's absolutely. I mean, it is. It is Mission Impossible. It is Ocean's Eleven. It is all all of that. It's. I mean, it, it's very tropey at times. I mean, because it's it's that formula. You've got the opening heist, which shows the team working together. You know, then you've got. Uh, the next mission okay they're going to do this mission and then oh, something goes wrong and oh is there a betrayal i don't know and then you know then they've got to go and 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 resolve the things that happen in the mission that didn't go right so it is it is very much that kind of heist formula if you will that you've seen at least half a dozen times in other films and and maybe done better but not done by these guys <laughs> so it's, it's it's again it's like Let's take the Y&D guys and put them in a heist movie. Are you going to have fun with that? Well, if you had fun with the Y&D movies and you like those guys, then yeah, you're going to have you're going to have fun with it because it's it's not poorly crafted. It's nothing that's going to revolutionize anything in terms of narrative or things that it's doing. But will you have fun with it? Yeah, I think you will. And I think uh, the tunnel sequence definitely proves that uh, fairly early on in uh, the movie we have some trouble at least on my version of uh, having unsubtitled uh, english dialogue from local heavily accented actors um, that uh, I, um, it, it's sort of a pet peeve like come on please subtitle it all because uh, I'm, I'm i'm obviously not adept at english but there are accents to break through here in certain sections so i'm a bit sad they didn't do that but there's some funny stuff with uh, during the tunnel sequence where they exchange a van through some uh, very smooth uh, and suitable gadgets and fun gadgets it's such a perfect operation but there there's some funny uh, lines from the guy they they stopped as driving a van is it illegal to have a hamburger and they flash back to one of the boys speaking to the guy, speaking Japanese, dressed as a rabbi, to get the guy on board. So that's why his story is like it was a Jewish guy who spoke Japanese. And I thought like, oh, this guy doesn't know how to differentiate between Chinese and Japanese. Like, that's the joke. No, that that was it. <laughs> it's a really daft outfit to super hide the identity of who it was that approached him to be part of that uh, tunnel operation as the van is exchanged with um, with uh, the goal goal inside uh, the goal and eventually the gold inside so that was a smooth thing because i i i, I can get on board with heist movies that also they they have every gag um, every gadget in the book ready for a smooth transition like that and i thought that was very enjoyable as uh, as he uh, crafted that sequence so, you know it needs to be snappy and needs to be edited well and needs to be fun and needs to come off as these guys they know what they're doing and they did it uh, under the disguise of uh, the the tunnel in this case so a, a standout sequence for for me so in any notes on 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 that uh, on that uh, centerpiece if you will it's one of those things where it almost falls into not, not as not as bad as other movies i've seen but it almost falls into that trap of okay, we need to do this job because we're going to get a lot of money, but we have to spend a lot of money 
to do the job. <laughs> and it almost seems like with the gadgetry that they've got, that they're utilizing, they're spending more money than they'd actually to do the job than they'd actually get from the job. So, <laughs> now, damn it, we did it again. It's clever. I mean, some of the stuff that they do is clever and it's inventive and, and creative. And even though you've seen the job before, um, they're they're doing some creative ways about going about it. So, and and then he uh, there, there, there's a classical tropey. Um... Uh, meeting separately that doesn't go as it should, you know, and uh, that's where the gunplay and the pyrotechnics, uh, pyrotechnics, uh, enter, I suppose. And it's decent looking, even as they navigate uh, the gunplay, like the bursts of choreography that the shots uh, require. Uh, they're, they're they're not trying to make them all look like uh, they're trying fat out of hard boiled or anything. Uh, and and Chinkalock isn't desperately trying to copy someone else's cinematic style in terms of the gunplay this isn't john woo stuff from 1992 or anything but it it looks good and looks cool because uh, this type of gunplay requires a stunt background of note a design background of note and that's what we have in chinkalock and uh, that that feeds into the car stunts and the driving looking pretty okay too uh it, it's a uh, it, it's exciting as a commercial movie scenario and a set piece in these foreign environments and we're talking in the section that's mostly set in what i assume is real life hungary it certainly looks like a european setting um in uh, in and uh, probably in budapest as a matter of fact uh, i had the critical note of some of the car stunts looking uh, looking poor in this section that like that daytime chase in budapest that is capped with a car going right into a police station and stuntman moving out of the way that isn't the sequence where i place that critical note because i think this is very well put together like the, the gunplay that we have and the car chase that we have even if there is post-production trickery here it's concealed very well and uh, the scenario feels weighty uh, the latter sequence at the car show that we'll get to, I'm sure. That's when um, it doesn't look good. The uh, are certainly not weighty anymore as cars are involved. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll get to that. But uh, were you into at all uh, the gunplay that uh, Chinkalock um, uh, designed, or did you like uh, did you like more the uh, the chase stuff on the streets and the mayhem that he designed um, uh, designed for that on the streets of Budapest? Yeah, I, I'm much more into the gunplay side of things than the car chases. Um, car chases don't, you know, excite me all that much. And I, I do know that one of the things I talked about when we originally talked about this movie was, yeah, there's a sequence where they kind of get get into a little bit of a kerfuffle at a at a car show, and then I think Ekin steals some kind of race car, and then once they're out on the street, there's definitely a couple shots that are. Um, very much computer generated that look very floaty of of the car and i one thing i will say is that on the small screen it's not quite as bad as it was on the big screen because it was really bad on on the big screen and on um, the big screen paul fox was shouting out this is gran turismo this is grand theft auto it doesn't work yeah. shut up no not even it's like <laughs> playstation 2 come on do you think that's indeed uh, do you think that's indicative of that's as good as we can make it or did Chinkalok like over design his action by that point uh yeah I, I just think it was probably the limitations of the budget and the the effects house they they ended up going with because i mean doing car stunts digitally 
has been something that's been going on for a long, long time. And I just, you know, I, I think that they had an idea and then they got to the FX house and maybe the FX house wasn't as, as committed or, or wasn't as high end as they could afford um, for what they could do. So because, because the earlier sequence in Budapest looks uh, actually tons, a lot better, a lot more balanced than the, and weighty, literally, like the, the, that we have some physical action going on here rather than uh, cars from a cutscene. And, and thankfully, those moments are really just seconds, you know, out of the whole length of the comparable movie. And where I think Chin Kalak shines is, again, um, you know, with his bigger gunplay action sequences and and some of the fight choreography um, that he has on hand here. Um, and he utilizes that and the people he's got working for him well. So, you know, you've got some veterans here. Billy Chow has a role. Doesn't he look like he's, it, they just transported him from 80s and 90s right yeah. into this movie. Billy looks Chow great. looks amazing, has not aged a bit and could probably just kick your insides out. Yeah. And of course, Karada's here as well. And and same thing. I mean, uh, he's he's gracefully aged, but he looks amazing. I wish I looked half as good as he does uh, right now. They really do a nice job, um, you know, building a character for him and, and, and establishing a relationship with him. Um, I like that a lot. And I mean, th- again, gunfights aside, car chase special effects aside, this is a big big production i mean they have this whole sequence set in japan where they're having a sake release festival and they've got like dozens of dancers and you know they're they're banging the big drums and everything and and i'm just like i i I watch this and i'm going this is a hong kong okay a co-production to be sure but still this is a big big hong kong movie i mean lots of people lots of extras on the screen lots of costume design going on here and everybody's speaking their the language they should, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and sync sound, and they're just going with it, which is great. And I'm just like, you know, it, it's it's checking all the boxes for me, for sure. You mean, uh, in terms of the dramatic side, I think they're serious about what they're doing, that this uh, is a tale of bloody brotherhood and betrayal, and that's going to be tragic. But at the same time, I don't think Chinkalok is uh, thinking he's uh, the next coming of... Uh, you know dramatic heroic bloodshed so so yeah they take it seriously but they don't aim to blow your socks off with poignancy or anything i think they he's happy and competent working the tropes of uh, of that story and i think that regardless if that was his thinking as he was conceptualizing i think it comes off as that and that's a good choice for the movie and uh, and the veterans uh add to that you know they, they they take it as seriously as a tropey story like this should be taken and that includes you know the guys we've talked about that includes uh, Yasuagi Karata to an extent that includes uh, Eric Tsang as well as uh, as a father figure of of sorts uh, and um, it's it's all competent in this uh, framework no one is uh, half working here right? I think they're, 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 there's an understanding of genre and template and the parameters they're working within so it's going to be fun but it's tragic and bloody to an extent uh, too but not too weighty and not too gritty and not too downright depressing or anything uh, uh, because after some drama stuff i had a bit of a chuckle because i think this is very much by design Uh, before the uh before the movie switches to montenegro and when it does there's some very quick assumptions here that the characters are so 
quick and capable to plan stuff and getting guns and getting a plan in place quickly that therefore we're at the island com- compound attack in a matter of minutes or even seconds and i like that complete like yeah of course they're capable Let, let's get to the action and climax right away we don't need to spend 20 minutes looking over papers and plans and talking get to the stuff I thought that was one of the better transitions in a movie because that that, that showed an understanding of, yeah, this doesn't need to be two hours either. Let's just get to the stuff, man. But uh, let's uh, let's be good at it. And uh, I think generally they they were very good at it. So uh, I don't know if that that was a sequence that stood out to you, that that it moved so fast into Montenegro and then boom, action climax. But I, I enjoyed it very much. So was that a, a structure structure thing that you spotted yourself? I mean, aside from some of the effects issues we talked about, the main thing that kind of doesn't really work for me is that um, the, the the motivation of the character who's ultimately behind everything, um, I think, isn't explored deeply enough through whatever flashbacks or whatever. I just, from what's established early on, it it doesn't feel like, that where where that character ends up is all that genuine for some reason i i come back to the fact that um yeah it might not be that terribly deep or poignant but it's also sort of within the template of what yeah. we're dealing with here uh, uh because that that character is uh not in control of his emotions either he uh he has his goals and uh uh, he's uh, dramatic about it, um, you know. Even if it's uh, involves a betrayal, yeah. When they, he, even Jerry Lamb gets to shoot and look cool doing so. And as I said, Jerry Lamb uh, better hair, ponytail, and bun than uh, Jordan Chan. Jordan Chan has a pathetic little acorn tail bun, while Jerry Lamb has a full head, and uh, Ikin Chang has a creepy amount of hair. Now, in terms of cameos, one thing I wanted to ask, because uh, even on the second watch through, I, I did not spot him, but I wasn't actively looking. Apparently, Andrew Lau is in there somewhere um, amongst the extras or something, at least according to Hong Kong Movie Database. So. I mean, it's a guy with glasses. He looks like a director, so he doesn't like stand <laughs> out as such, even if he is here in a camera. I, I, I didn't spot him as such, to be honest. Uh, but but you're not getting to direct this film, Sifu, you know, Sifu Lau what section would that have been in you think because the i mean were they ever in china or hong kong for extensive amounts of time it looked like pretty much a movie abroad for a large amount of its time you know yeah i think so maybe the uh the scenes at like the medical tents or something with charmaine shea was was uh done you know in in some you know, woods in hong kong somewhere it's hard, it's hard to say but um as you mentioned earlier, we don't get, unfortunately, a, a cameo by Jason Chu. Um, there's no Francis M here either. Francis was really busy, though, so I'm not surprised. I mean, they, maybe they asked him, but uh, he had three films the same year. He had three films the prior year and uh, three films the following year. So I think he had a pretty full schedule on his plate rather than being able to come in for a cameo. So. Some final, uh, a final note. There's some, there's some nice uh, takedowns in the varied uh, action uh, climax. Uh, a lot of it is focused on uh, gunplay. Uh, some, you know, some wire pulls and some kneecapping. Uh, people, people being, sh- being shot in the knees. Yes, but by that point, we're we're still getting the blood puffs rather than uh, actual squibs. But they they don't seem to focus on the CG of blood. And I I was kept 
sort of glued to the drama, despite that being the design, because you just have to accept it by this point, after so many years of uh, CJ Blood. Have you gotten any better at CJ Blood? I don't know. I don't know if there's an area where you can get better. But um, when I think back on movies, like this is completely uh, off-topic. I think back on um, Takeshi Kitano's Satoichi, back in 15 years ago now. I, I remember, yeah, it's it's fun, but that CJ blood looks horrendous, and maybe that looks better nowadays. But um, but yeah, the, um, and even in that um, Ninja Assassin movie for the Korean uh, actor and singer Rain, tons and tons of CJ blood. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. There's too much of it. So maybe the, maybe the solution to all of this is a little blood blood puffs, little smoky things to not uh, distract me so because I, I i don't think any filmmaker in this day and age want to get back to uh, doing it the old way the old messier way especially not when you're doing uh, hong kong gunplay i think uh, filmmakers are perfectly happy with not having shirts to clean <laughs> and uh, multiple shirts and all of that so anyway uh perfectly enjoyable so um uh, I would recommend it, uh, and uh, it's over in a flash. It's not one of those overextended films that uh, feel important to the degree where it needs to be 130 minutes of this stuff. Nope, you're out in 100, 99 or 100. So the, that's uh, the end of what I have to say. So anything else you want to say about, uh, about the golden job? Nope, I think we covered it pretty well. And uh, did you think like your view then versus now sort of was the same, or did you think you liked it a bit more this time around? I probably liked it a little bit less because the first time I saw it, again, it was this period where access to Hong Kong cinema has been very, very sparse. So anytime I get to take that, have the luxury of taking that long trip down to Miami to see a film in the cinema, I'm somehow, you know, much more apologetic. And, And this is... One of the reasons why uh, when Kevin and I talk about the film Meow and I said, you know, I will defend Meow (laughs) until my dying day Um, because, yes, Meow is not a great film, but I love it because, you know, it was like the first film I was able to go out and and see after I left Hong Kong, you know, and, and have that feeling of, you know, watching a Hong Kong film in the cinema. So I'm a little I have a bit of bias, you know, when when I'm in these cinema viewings. And I try and, you know, state that when I talk about the films, but being able to watch them again on, on the smaller screen, I think I take a little bit more of a critical eye and, and they're, they're not perhaps as glowing for me as when they're in the cinema. You don't need, you, you, you don't need to hide your like genuine love for a giant cat movie in these sort of, oh, let me preface it with this. Like, it's okay. Lewis Koo in a giant cat movie. Awesome. In. Let, let let it be primal be your love for it be primal like that i don't care about it yeah it's 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 very primal to be sure <laughs> um but yeah i th- i do think that i i you know that with this viewing at home i it was um i was a little bit more critical i was a little bit able to pick up on some of the flaws in the film than the first time as for availability of golden job it's available on dvd and blu-ray in hong kong ditto for america and digital hd options are available on iTunes US and Amazon Prime US. I'm not too sure if this has UK distribution, but um, you can get it on disc and digital uh, in those regions at the very least. So um, check your local uh, listings, so to say, and I hope you can find it if you feel like this is something you want to take a chance on. 
But at any rate, we are officially done with the Young and Dangerous uh, universe here on Podcast on Fire. So um, unless we have any other ideas uh, that we uh, want to explore, then um, this is uh, the conclusion of our box set of... Uh, podcast reviews uh, if you will so let's maybe we'll stitch them all together for a big four or five hour podcast episode with just the young and dangerous reviews but uh, that would be kind of lazy too that would not really count as a new episode but um, it would be a would be a neat experiment to see how just how much time we talked about these movies but hey i didn't mind it in the end even if, if i said i was done after part one it was uh, enjoyable for all their uh, flaws and their positives to go down this uh, road and to have an informative perspective on your behalf and uh, from your side and uh, it was uh, very much enjoyable so let's uh, let's prep for the troublesome night expose that we have planned let's do it <laughs> was it over 20 i know it's up into the high teens i think like 18 or 19 i don't know if they broke into the 20s even if you stick to the to the coup of it all it's at least six films yeah i mean but the main thing is like availability because i think i've got like one or two of the teen movies in there but i I never saw them and and some of them were like you know shot on video and they have that video look for the era and it's like i don't know where those films even went so I mean, some of them you would see ubiquitously, like, you know, especially some of the, the Lewis Koo ones, they would be in every video store and availability, you know, you can still find them. But some of the some of the other ones, I just I don't even know where they were released to. Maybe Helena Lolan has them all. The, the creepy the creepy ghostly granny of those movies uh, so you, you have to get past her <laughs> at uh, any rate. Um, those movies could still be worthy of like a one two three movie retrospective those troublesome night movies because it's indicative of a commercial thinking of sorts it's the beginning of the, the beginning of uh, Louis Coe's filmography to a degree and it's kind of neat to examine if that formula of horror story three horror stories in one directed by notable directors such as Herman Yao if that uh, even holds uh, water in one two three and up to six movies so it's not an impossible coverage to do, but certainly not uh, the entire run, because uh, I imagine once they go, got to Troublesome Night 18, is shot on video. We're not talking uh, productions that shot for months and months and months trying to craft the story. We're talking quick, uh, quick fixes for the video market um, by that point. Uh, but we'll see. It's an idea. But in the meantime, for all your Podcast on Fire network uh, needs, go to podcastonfire.com. All the social media links are there. All the relevant links uh, connected to this episode are uh, episode. Uh, they're there as well. So uh, follow us, rate and subscribe. Uh, follow us on iTunes and stream us on Stitcher and Spotify and all that good stuff. And follow my writing on sogoodreviews.com. But more importantly, follow Paul Fox's podcast. And what is that called and uh, where can I find that? Yep, we are East Screen, West Screen, and you can find us at concast.com. It's not easy to program episodes in 2021, necessarily, or you have some plans in, in motion. We uh, we have some plans. Uh, we've recorded our first episode for the year, which is, at the time of recording this, it's on the editing deck. And um, I'm still toying with the idea of maybe doing some 
uh, short, you know, solo episodes um, with content that is out there on the web that interests me. Um, again, availability to Hong Kong stuff is extremely limited, but there's been some stuff of interest coming out on other channels, uh, Japanese movies and, and Korean movies and things. Um, that are streaming out there that I think would be worth talking about. So um, we're in plans for, you know, some some other shows. Like I said, I think we only did half a dozen shows last year, and I'd like to at least do a dozen, one a month this year. Um, but some other ideas for some other backward-looking series as well that I'm playing with. So hopefully we'll have more content. Well, I look forward to it uh, regardless because I'm I'm an avid I'm an avid listener. So. So uh, whenever you come up uh, with it and uh, what you come up with, I'm uh, I'm there. All right, thank you. Uh, cool, my friend. Well, f- thank you for sticking with me during this Young and Dangerous coverage and uh, programming this episode uh, partly by uh, injecting the uh, the cost reunion movie at hand, Golden Job. I think it was a suitable cap to it all. So uh, that's us. Hope you enjoyed. I've been Kenny Beep, and with me was Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast, who's finally gonna serenade us with the young and dangerous theme from the first movie verbatim in perfectly correct cantonese and tune and he's gonna do that in one two three go not happening sorry (laughs) but thank you all for sticking with us for uh, for this series it's been uh, really great fun to revisit all these 